Welcome to Engaging History. My name is Christopher Kinsella, author of Chain of Deception. I'm a professor of history at Cuyahoga Community College in Northeast Ohio. My podcasts are not endorsed by any individual or organization. This podcast is my opinion and interpretation of the historical events that I will discuss. The purpose of the podcasts are in general to discuss American and world history in a way that engages you and explains so much of the country and the world around you. But I also discuss it in a way that is understandable and interesting. So we are at the 46th podcast in our series on the first half of American history. The podcast in this series that are continuing to discuss the American Civil War. In the 45th podcast, we looked at what became known as phase one of the American Civil War, 1861 to 1862. We discussed the impact of the First Battle of Bull Run, also known as the Battle of Manassas, Virginia. We looked then and discussed the Battle of Shiloh. We saw a pattern developing with Lincoln's top, President Lincoln's top military commander, George McClellan, constantly returning to Washington, D.C., whether it was a battle that he won or lost against the Confederacy, specifically under the leadership of Confederate General Robert E. Lee. McClellan was constantly returning to to Washington, D.C. to discuss the latest turn of events with his commander-in-chief. Again, please know that that is not what Lincoln wanted. Lincoln did not want to see McClellan in the Oval Office. He wanted to see McClellan on the battlefield pursuing the enemy. We then looked at that second Battle of Bull Run, August to September of 1862. And sadly, we also discussed the massive toll it was taken in human body count as well. We discussed the impact of Clara Barton and then moving on to Lincoln finally relieving George McClellan from his command and promoting John Pope as his replacement. So in this 46th podcast, we're going to look now at phase two of the American Civil War, 1862 to 63. War in phase two, was now beginning to focus on the high seas. Even though the Union was blockading the entire Confederate coast from the outskirts of Washington, D.C., all the way down to the southern tip of Florida, and then throughout the Gulf of Mexico. Please remember, while you can chalk that up and say, yep, Union's got that covered. Remember, listeners, that when a commander-in-chief is appointing admirals, to maintain a fleet in order to boycott, that same fleet is unavailable to fight. That same number of soldiers is unavailable to transfer to the ground in order to take the battle to the Confederacy itself. In other words, manning a post is expensive, and the, and the coast of the Confederacy is huge when you take into consideration the Gulf of Mexico. But also at this time, when we're looking at phase two of the American Civil War, we look at that famous battle between the USS Monitor and the CSS Merrimack, or better known as the Merrimack versus the Monitor or vice versa. These were, as we now know, the first what we would call ironclad ships. Yes, they were primarily wooden ships, but they had these massive planks of steel over their sides, which made the musket balls simply bounce off 
And even the large cannonballs may be making a little bit of a dent, but then falling harmlessly in the water. In this well-known battle, also known as the Battle of Hampton Roads in March of 1862, is where those two ships, the USS Monitor with two guns on it, have on a turret, where the CSS Merrimack actually had 10 guns. In other words, the Confederate ship was better armed than the uh, Union ship was. But because of the ironclad skins on both of these vessels, it turned out to be a draw in the more the battle waged on. And in the end, both sunk anyhow. But then why then do we discuss it? Why is it still important to bring this to our attention here in the, our podcast on the American Civil War? Because both the Confederacy and the Union realized the virtue of these, as were called then, ironclad ships. While both sank, the patents for the 47 new inventions was now ongoing. And mind you, that's just 47 of the 240 total new patents requested just for the year 1862 alone. This is the reason why, as I stress to my classes, I'm not trying to glorify war. But if you want to open up the human mind to real possibilities, ingenuity, and original thinking, pardon the crassness of what I'm about to say, but if you want to get the human being to think, just point a gun at their head. And it's amazing the way they begin to think outside of the box. This is the reason, as I say, that nothing drives human progress, sadly, more than warfare. Because when two countries are at war and they are desperate to try to get the upper hand, they also then go out of their way to think desperately outside of the box. Remember the old phrase spoken by many of, many of uh, experts on motivating people and self-help experts, but simply put, motivated needs, or excuse me, satisfied needs, they really don't motivate. In other words, when we're content and life's good, we tend not to think the same way as unsatisfied needs are. In other words, unsatisfied needs motivate far more than a human being with satisfied needs. And that's what where both the Union and the Confederacy are in at this position. Because by March of 1862, it was becoming very well known at this point that this was not going to be a short war with minor casualties on both sides. They were they, This war was now in for the long haul. As a result of the way that both sides stood aghast, watching both of those ironclad ships sink down to the bottom outside of Hampton Roads, Virginia, sink down to the bottom of the ocean, they both realized that naval warfare has now forever changed. But remember, because of the industrialization of the North, the North is going to be able to outproduce the South with ironclad ships. It is not an exaggeration to say that the Confederacy was better at coming up with new ways of fighting and new ideas. But the problem is they didn't have the industry on their side. So once the Union saw what the South was doing, 
this North could simply just outproduce the South and run rings around them, which is sadly what they did. But again, if the Confederacy wasn't strong in their ways of thinking, the war would never have waged four years with the massive body count that is continuing to unfold. So with those two ships as well, once that hit the International Press Corps of the virtue of ironclad ships, navies from around the world were now obsolete. And any royal family leading any country around the world read about the battle between the Merrimack and the Monitor, astonished, but at the same time fearful, that regardless of whether the Union wins this conflict or the Confederacy wins the conflict, their own naval vessels were now sorely outdated. And again, as I said, the North quickly outproduced the South, and the reason why we really don't have any uh, battles of note on the high seas. In terms of foreign relations, British and the British and the French, believe it or not, were pro-Confederate, and many other European nations were as well. Remember that by the 1850s, the United States was becoming a major, major economic, military, and political powerhouse. Remember, as I stated earlier, that 85% of the world's cotton was grown from the 11 states that now make up the Confederacy. Nothing would have pleased Britain and France, France more than to see a United States cut right in half. That could have the potential to destabilize America's economy, would certainly mute her ability to wage war on the high seas with other countries. In other words, to Britain, France, and many other European countries, there was no downside to a Confederate victory. Well, was there any country that actually was pro-Union? Ironically enough, in 1862, there was. The one country, solely one country, that was supporting the North, supporting the Union, ironically enough, would be America's arch nemesis exactly 100 years later in what a conflict that would be known as the Cold War. And that country is none other than Russia. The reason why, however, that Russia was pro-Union was not because Russia's morals and ethics that they believed slavery had to come to an end. Heck no. This was all about geopolitics. The bottom line is, is if the European countries wanted a United States torn in half, then Russia wanted to see a United States unified under one flag. You might say, well, why would Russia care then when at this time they are really on the op truly on the opposite side of the globe? Well, to understand Russia's position, we will have to go back just less than 10 years to Eurasian history when we saw in 1851 to 1853, the way that Russia went to war over the Baltic Sea and the Crimean area that became known as the Crimean War. Russia lost that war badly to Britain and France as they unified together and were able to economically punish severely Russia and rob her of her warm water access in her ports that she needed for world trade. Nothing would have pleased Russia more than to see an unsettled 
Britain and France as a result of a unified United States of America. So again, if the European nation wants a split United States, then a Russia wanted a unified one. So you can see at the end of this, the United States, the Union, really didn't have any major powers on its side. Oh, there were on paper, but what good does that do you? All right, so in this second phase of the American Civil War, where are we at then in terms of battles? Well, in this particular phase, on September 17, 1862, the Battle of Antietam, Maryland, also took place with a 75,000 Union strong army versus a 50,000 Confederate strong Confederate side. This would be the bloodiest day in United States history with the Union losses of 2,100 dead and over 9,000 wounded with the Confederate loss of 2,700 dead but also over 9,000 wounded. Remember that again, when I'm talking about a wounded soldier, I'm not talking about an abrasion to the shoulder, hand, or head. I'm usually talking about, a, what we're talking about here is usually a soldier who was injured as a result of the mini ball, at least on the Confederate side, but also even some cases on the Union side, where the number one surgical tool used on victims of the impact of a mini ball was amputation. So these wounded oftentimes would, never, would no longer be able to return to the battlefield. So when I talk about Antietam being the bloodiest day in American history through to 2021, that statistic, ironically and sadly enough, recently came into question. And I pause here for a moment. I'll drag this out if you'd like to think when and how and why would the September 17th date of 1862 come into our American psyche in a new violent way in recent American history? Well, I'll give you a hint. Antietam was September 17th. Subtract six days from that. And what date are you at? September 11th. Of course, not 1862, but 2001. When the 9-11 attacks happened and the body count sadly was being tallied, it immediately began to get into historian American hist uh, historians' minds that sadly will 9-11 eclipse the Battle of Antietam as the bloodiest day in world history. As we know, that did not take place. However, had those planes hit the Twin Towers just one hour later, when most people would have been at their desk, the amount of deaths at that point would have been astronomical. So let's look at the significance of Antietam. With this yet another Confederate loss, foreign support for the South ultimately dried up. It would also be as a result of Antietam that Lincoln considered moving ahead with his greatest threat his greatest political potential bomb that he could hold over the heads of the Confederacy, and that is emancipation. You might say, well, yeah, Chris, but he, he issued that right away. No, he didn't. The Emancipation Proclamation, as its name applies, proclamation proclaimed on January 1st, 1863. He put that together right at the conclusion of Antietam. 
Why? Because he wanted to threaten the South that unless they surrendered immediately, or at least by December 31st of that year, then he would move ahead with emancipation. A lot of people, especially my own students, oftentimes forget that or never knew that to begin with. The proclamation was not given because Lincoln had nothing to do on New Year's Eve 1862. No, he had drawn up that policy three and a half months earlier. And President Lincoln, realizing that it was pointless to try to argue with his counterpart, Confederate President Jefferson Davis, he leaked the copy of that memo, a copy of that uh, proclamation, to the vice president of the Confederacy, Alexander Stevens. Stevens was told by the courier on behalf of the American government, specifically President Abraham Lincoln, read this policy, read this proclamation. You have essentially 100 days to surrender. You do that, slavery stays intact. You don't do that then we are going to make a proclamation that all slaves on the North American continent that fall within the confines of the United States of America, south of the current Union border, are free. Notice that I did not say all of the United States. The Emancipation Proclamation did not apply to the Union states. But so wait a minute. I thought he freed all the slaves. No, he made a proclamation, ladies and gentlemen. He had no way to enforce that in law. What's he going to do to the 11 states? He's at war with them. They're not listening to him anyhow. Then who did it apply to? At this time, no one. But wait a minute. What about Maryland and all these other states? What about them? You remember, we know now over a century and a half later, that the Confederacy only expanded to 11 states. Lincoln doesn't have the luxury of knowing that number in 1862. Any day moving forward after that war started, any of the other states could have joined the 11 and brought that number to 12, 13, 14. Where and how would it stop? Lincoln could not take a chance alienating the Union states that were already bordering the Confederacy and in some cases were on the brink of whether to join the Confederacy in the name of states' rights or stay with the Union. So when Alexander Stevens rejected what Lincoln was hoping is that Stevens would be the bug in Jefferson Davis's ear to force surrender, but Stevens and Davis would have none of it. Therefore, effective January 1st, 1863, that when, not if, but when, the Union ultimately wins this war. Now, mind you, there was no guarantee of a, of a uh, when. It truly was an if. But if the United States wins the war, all slaves in the Confederate States of America shall be deemed free upon surrender. Please note, though, that we look back on the proclamation, Emancipation Proclamation as one of the finest moments in American history drawn up by one of the top three presidents in American history. But please know that at this time, 
Lincoln is proposing one of the most unpopular policies of his administration for a couple of reasons. Number one, think about how that changes the goals of the war. The goal of the North changed from preservation, preserving the Union, now to abolitionism. That is part of the reason why over 40% of the Union Army either threatened to or went AWOL as a result. So that's what changed in the North. What about in the South? The South's change was even graver because the goal of the South before was simply independence. Now it's a battle for survival. If you don't believe me, then why is the worst, deadliest, most violent battle of the American Civil War had we have yet to discuss? Because it hasn't happened yet. Before, when it was about Northern preservation and Southern independence, sure, the bodies racked up and piled up, but nothing like we're going to see unfold in the remaining years of the conflict. Remember again, too, that the proclamation was the single most unpopular act in the Lincoln administration, both in the South and the North, as those Union soldiers that did go AWOL, as they said, quote, I'll fight to save the Union, but I will not fight to free the slaves, end quote. So with the proclamation becoming equivalent of the law of the land, at least while Lincoln is president, we then get to that most violent battle and deadliest battle of the American Civil War, none other, of course, than the Battle of Gettysburg, July 1st to the 3rd, 1863. If you ever have the opportunity, Gettysburg is not only so important in the entire American Civil War, but because it took place over three days, it tends to be one of the most toured Civil War battle sites. It is so important that to try to accommodate American interest, there are various tours that one can take from just a couple of hours to many, many hours where one can see just what took place and when during this infamous three-day battle. So if you get there and you were to look at the topography, you might wonder, Lee, what did you want here? What did you hope to secure for the Confederacy? What Lee wanted was, number one, to be able to secure high ground in order to set up a future attack further into the heartland of Union territory. Remember, we're in Pennsylvania now. Lee is advancing north. A lot of people tend to forget that when we think battles of the Civil War, we tend to think that they're all fought south of the line that separates the Confederacy from the Union. That's not the case. Many battles were fought, of course, in the North as well. So Lee, with 75,000 soldiers, thinking he was strong with that number, he was actually blind to the Union strength of 104,000 soldiers despite given the warnings that they might be significantly outnumbered, Lee ordered his commander, George Pickett, 
along with 13,000 men, to charge the Union high ground. Again, I'm not going to get in to second guessing here. Not only do I not believe in second guessing general's orders, I'm just as much vehemently against that as I am for battle reenactments. As I've had many a veteran tell me, when they hear or read about a supposed battle reenactment, as they say, the only thing those reenactors are missing is the most important thing, the ammunition. The animosity and hatred of battle reenactments by veterans of major wars is not to be taken lightly. George Pickett meant that he would be taking his 13,000 men and charging uphill to Union-held territory. Because of this, listeners, it was an absolute bloodbath. The 13,000 soldiers of Pickett's charge, as it became to be known as, were so condensed into a small area that 10 Confederates were witnessed to be mowed down by a single Union cannonball. That's the reason why, amongst others, that it was truly and truly a bloodbath. The Union line held, even though the Confederates were charging, in some cases less than five feet apart from one another. Pickett had no more chance of winning this battle than Lee did of the entire battle. It became therefore known as the most violent battle of the war, with staggering numbers of over 23,000 casualties on the Union side and 28,000 casualties on the Confederate side. Sadly, listen as I just give you one quick example of the horror of those numbers that I just rattled off to you. Let's take the 14th Tennessee Regiment alone. 960 soldiers left their homes to fight together as one unit when the war broke out. By July 1st, 1863, before the Battle of Gettysburg even commenced, 365 remained. Yes, 595 soldiers were already killed or injured beyond, beyond healing up to Gettysburg. Of the 365 soldiers of the Tennessee Regiment that began to fight, after day one, 60 were still alive. By the end of July 3rd, 48 hours later, there were three, 960 down to three. Needless to say, this would be the last Confederate offensive operation that Lee would ever be able to wage. It would be arguably the furthest north that Lee would ever be able to advance. Despite the loss, Lee took all responsibility. However, George Pickett never did forgive him. This was the Battle again of Gettysburg. As a result of this such massive number of deaths on both sides, over 50,000, the United States government clearly realized that it had to dedicate a portion of that battlefield to a cemetery, or at least to an area to commemorate the brave soldiers that fought. 
Edward Everett, a senator from Massachusetts, was invited to be the keynote speaker. The Union, already getting fed up with the war, initially didn't even want President Abraham Lincoln to even show up. So Everett, who was considered to be the man of the hour, gave the address and spoke for over two hours. President Lincoln, who largely wasn't given a time limit because, after all, he is the president, was invited at the very last minute, more as an afterthought. And when he did get up to speak, he spoke from his heart, but he only spoke for two words, two minutes, and spoke, as we know, 269 words that we know as the Battle of Gettysburg, Gettysburg Address. The Gettysburg Address is what will begin the next podcast as we continue on our discussion of the American Civil War. But at 269 words, I would like my listeners to hear as I read slowly those 269 words and how impressive, how moving those words were spoken by our 16th president of the United States. So thank you for listening. Please go to my website if you have any questions or comments. Also, too, if you like what we have discussed today, please leave me a review as well. And when we come back, we're going to be, again, listening to that Gettysburg Address, and we're going to find out just how the quality of life truly plummeted in the South as a result of the Battle of Gettysburg but for Abraham Lincoln, who was desperate for positive military leadership, would eventually call on one of the most unpopular generals of the American Civil War to be continued. Have a great day.